Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to cover Pro Wrestling's original Supercard. It's the one that started it all. It's Starcade 1983. Kyush, what the hell took us so long to finally cover the original Starcades? You know, I don't know. I think in the back of our heads, like, it almost seems like some sort of, like, dark era. I imagined that when I turned on this footage, it was going to be, like, grainy black and white footage shot with, like, a handheld camera that was like 10 feet tall and like you wouldn't even be able to hear the sound because it was recorded in a different era and it didn't even work that way. I don't know. 1983 somehow at the same time feels like 8,000 years ago and also it was only two years before I was born. So I guess I'm 8,000 years old. Right. I mean, this is only two years before WrestleMania, but I do have to point out that it does predate WrestleMania and is, almost undoubtedly the inspiration for WrestleMania. Everything that WrestleMania is, is basically stolen from this. Yeah. Just WrestleMania is bigger because WrestleMania was national and this was only regional. But like in terms of the structure of a big show, you have to remember the idea of like a big pay-per-view show, like a, like a big fuck off super show like this, like they had done it for like live events before. Yeah. But like, to actually structure how you film it and how the matches will look and how you light it and what the announcers will do, all of that kind of stuff, you have to come up with that from scratch. Yeah, I mean, there have been, you know, there have been stadium shows in wrestling forever. Yeah. World Class would run Texas Stadium and they would televise those cards, but not closed circuit. They would just put them on regular TV a few days after they aired. Um, and they, they were pretty much no different from the presentation of the rest of their stuff. It just yeah. happened to be at a big stadium. Yeah. Like this time, they go out of their way to be like, this is a big show. It has to be different. It has to be bigger somehow. And it seems that way. There's been closed circuit broadcasts in wrestling before this. Ali versus Inoki uh, was on closed circuit in 1976. Debacle that it turned out to be. One day we're going to talk long form about that fucking trash it invented mixed martial arts yeah, in a way. <laughs> yeah. um, but this is something different. And this is a major step towards pay-per-view, which will become the foundation of pro wrestling in the is. And if this hadn't been successful, if this had been a huge disaster, if there had been production snafus out the ass and, like, nobody had wanted to see the main event, if, in fact, this had been, like, more than half of the Starcades that ever happened, there yeah. never would have been a pay-per-view boom. There just wouldn't have been. This wouldn't have seemed like a replicatable idea. Luckily, they hit it out of the park. Absolutely. Great show. And we'll get into it was not as successful as they were hoping but it, that was just because it was really bad weather this night, which you can't control. Nope. Um, so wrestling on Thanksgiving in the South was a longstanding tradition. I think Crockett had promoted um, wrestling shows in Greensboro on Thanksgiving since like the early 60s. Uh, this is usually their biggest show of the year. So they're just taking it a step further by putting it on closed circuit this year. And the idea is born back in the spring. Um, in March 83, they have a card in Greensboro that was called Final Conflict. Um, it was not on closed circuit. It was not on TV. It was just 
you know, their regular Greensboro arena show that they would run every month. Um, the show was headlined by Ric Flair defending the NWA title against uh, Greg Valentine in a 60-minute time limit draw. That must have been unbearable to watch. Oh, my God. That was the, that was the sub-main event. The main event was Sergeant Slaughter and Don Carnoodle defending the tag titles against Jay Youngblood and Ricky Steamboat in a steel cage match. Hey. I don't know why, but this was like the biggest drawing match in the history of Jim Crockett promotions to this point. Let's be clear. This is a match that gets like one line in Ricky Steamboat's Wikipedia. <laughs> I don't think anybody understands why this was such a gigantic draw. Obviously, Steamboat and Youngblood were big draws of their yeah. own. And Slaughter was a big heel from another territory. And Carnoodle was a guy who existed whose name was yeah. Carnoodle. But somehow, literally, literally shut down the whole city. Yeah, so... Slaughter and Carnoodle had fucked Youngblood and Steamboat out of the belts, and they had gone around the territory a few times with Carnoodle and Slaughter retaining the belts because they'd get themselves disqualified. And so they do something different here, and I think this is kind of the key to why it drew so much, is they didn't take the cage match on the road. They just promoted it for Greensboro. So the only place you could see this match was in Greensboro. And for these big Greensboro cards, people would drive from all over the territory, from Virginia, from South Carolina, from the other parts of North Carolina, to see these shows in Greensboro. People just come out in droves for this match. They sell out the Greensboro Coliseum, you know, 15,000 plus tickets sold, and they turn away thousands of people. I mean, I've heard as high as 10,000 people. I'm sure that number has grown in time, but, you know, I've heard 3,000 people, 5,000 people, 6,000 people, 10,000 people they turned away at the gate. And it's, while that is an outrageous claim, and it's kind of a hard to prove one because it's not like they were actually measuring the people, you kind of believe it. We've covered what Southern wrestling kind of was in the past, but you got to understand that, especially in the early 80s, late 70s, it was like a cult situation. The only way to actually be aware of what was going on in the larger Southern wrestling scene was become like a massive super fan who traveled all over the territory like every weekend to go to the shows. And that's literally what people did. It was people's whole life watching wrestling. Yeah, I mean, the big thing that I think helped make this territory so successful in the Carolinas is at this point there are not professional sports teams in the Carolinas. Yes, no Carolina Panthers, no Carolina Hurricanes. I mean, you've got obviously college sports are huge in this region. You got North Carolina, Duke basketball, Clemson football, South Carolina football, but your pro sports stars are pro wrestlers. This is the biggest pro sports game in town. That's why everybody who was Everybody who was on the Crockett's regularly would say when they went to other places that they were from Greensboro, North Carolina. Like that that's just was their identity then. And you could get people pulled in from literally everywhere. There were some people on this show that they interviewed who were like, yeah, we traveled 180 miles in our car today to come to this show and sit in the 58th row. We love it. Yeah. Tony Schiavone's talked about that, that before he was – Working for the company as an announcer, he was just a fan, and he lived in Virginia, and he'd drive three or four hours to go to these shows in Greensboro. Because 
and it's you can kind of see the gestation of the idea that would become like these big pay-per-view events is the the idea of having in one place so every fan knew when it was time for yeah. the big shit we're driving to Greensboro and you could make all this money just doing the match one time not having to take it on the road and do it all around the territory you could make your million dollars in one night that's it's amazing that it took so long to come to that. The honestly. technology just wasn't there. And like it, it's sort of a heady thing to watch it coming together because and the the startup costs are really high to have to rent all these arenas, get the satellite time. Like I mean Vince gambled his whole business on WrestleMania one. WrestleMania one hadn't come through, he would have been out of money. To be honest, it probably should have failed, but we've covered that on our WrestleMania one show. Um it's just incredible because you're basically doing like advanced like promotions calculus trying to put these shows together because there's never been anything like them as we said there's no template for it like trying to figure out what this is even supposed to be is such an incredible problem to grapple with i i'm nothing but impressed with crockett as much as they get shit on now because of how they absolutely pissed away their fortune and their competition with Vince, it must be said that the reason they were competition with Vince, and in fact at this point winning, is because they were genius promoters in that territory. It really makes no sense when you think about it that this would be the territory that would end up competing with Vince. Like, you would think it would be the AWA with Chicago in its backyard, or world-class with Dallas. Like, you would not think the L.A. territory. You would not think it would be the one based in like Charlotte, Raleigh, Greensboro. Like those are not gigantic cities, especially back then. Raleigh has Raleigh and Charlotte have obviously grown a ton, but back then these are not big cities. Ironically, the NWA has more in common with like ECW than it does with what it would eventually become. Just in terms of like, it's really just an unbelievably passionate audience driving it forward into a success that it never really should have reached. So the, I- there. the idea for Starcade comes from Dusty Rhodes. Of course. He, yeah, pitches the idea to Jim Crockett. He hears about, like, the Slaughter, Kernodal, Youngblood, Steamboat thing. And he's like, yeah, you did a great house, but you could have made money from all those people you turned away. What if you had the show on closed circuit? And people could, you know, buy a ticket to watch it in the arena where they would go to the matches and they would just watch it on a screen. And, you know, great idea. It's kind of wild to think in retrospect that that was such a popular thing, because that seems like the worst time ever is to sit in an arena and watch a movie on a big screen, (laughs) especially as poorly lit as these things often were. But fuck, man, it was still an event. You couldn't watch it at home at this point. Um, Yeah. Maybe if you you might have been able to get it if you had a satellite dish, but you know, traditional pay-per-view does not come around for a few years. And but it's still as we've documented in our early WrestleMania episodes, like traditional pay-per-view is a giant pain in the ass at this point. Oh like God, yeah. having to get a box, having to put a deposit down for the box, like having to install this box and then take it back, like having to pay yeah like all of this together is not fun i mean compared to today where you click two buttons and you have the pay-per-view were you old 
stuff that you remember having to like actually call the cable company to get through the TV. Yeah, the first couple times I remember getting a pay-per-view, we had to call for it, and then we got digital cable, and you could just you know click the button and order it. I want you to all imagine little baby who had social anxiety and didn't like to talk to people having to call up a cable provider operator and be like, hi, I like to order uh, bad, bad blood, better enemies or good friends, better enemies, WWF. And they'd be like, really? You? And literally they would be on the phone like, you want to watch wrestling? And I'd be like, yes, please. It's <laughs> horrible customer service. But it was like 1994. Like it's the stupidest shit in the world then. Nobody was ordering it. Don't you know it. that shit's fake? <laughs> Well, anyway, here you go. Thanks for your twenty bucks, idiot. I did you have to read your like? Did you have to like read your credit card off, or would you just like they tell just the add it to your statement and they the put month. it on the bill? Okay, yeah. Because the first several that I bought, I did not tell my parents about it. That was a bad conversation. Yes. Um. So if they're gonna do the super card, they need a big main event, and they've got just the thing. They're going to do the first ever uh, NWA World Heavyweight title change in Greensboro. Um, for all the history of Greensboro, the belt has never changed hands to this that, point in Greensboro. That's incredible. It always it was always fucking Kansas City and St. Louis because of the political power of the promoters there. Yeah, cause Stan could say, no, 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 we're doing it here. Yeah. <laughs> Harley owned the Kansas City territory, so like, and he was the champ for most of the previous five years leading up to this. But the other part of that is that, like, literally the Council of Elders for the NWA had to meet in order to agree on a new champion. So a lot of the times they'd have those meetings in St. Louis, so they just fucking do the match there. Basically, <laughs> like, like a, yeah, it's basically like the heads of the New York crime families getting together. Yeesh. Um, but yeah, every time the belts change hands, they have to vote to approve the title change and agree on who the new champion is going to be. And there is a lot of political shenanigans that go on with this series of title changes here. Um, oh God, yeah. So Ric Flair has been the champ for a couple years at this point. He beat uh, Dusty for the title in St. Louis. I think it was not St. Louis, Kansas City, in September 1981. Flair has always said that he didn't like winning the belt in Kansas City because he wasn't over in Kansas City, but I'm sure that was just a favor to Harley. Yep, because Harley was God in Kansas City. Yeah. Uh, so Flair loses the belt to Harley in St. Louis on June 10th in 83. Um, according to Dave Meltzer, this was not actually to set up Starcade. Like, they haven't really figured that part out yet. They just want to get the belt back on Harley. I think it's just like a lot of the old time promoters did not like Flair, were very skeptical of him, preferred Harley as the champion. But I think Flair's supporters felt like they could really legitimize Flair by having him beat Harley for the title to win it back. Yeah, there's actually I think a lot of people think about this match and almost see it as like Flair's first title win because it's almost kind of prevented presented that way, like. Yeah. Despite the fact that he's won the belt before, this is the crowning of Ric Flair. This is the he's passing the of the for torch. Two years, like I know, but it's a different, it's a different era. Like this is literally like they, they obviously did not realize at the time that this is how this is going to be remembered. But this is like the beginning of recorded history, almost. Like going back 
much further than this, and things get murky as shit in terms of, like, who remembers who the NWA champion was in 1977? Probably a funk. I don't know. But, like, right here in 1983 is the beginning of the history that everybody knows. So, like, basically, he's being crowned the champion of the modern era. Um. So Crockett and the rest of the wrestling world are going through some turmoil at this point. Um, Vince McMahon has hired away their head booker, George Scott. That's one of his moves to go national. Um, More on that in a second. They've cycled through a couple different ideas for booking. Um, First, they hired Ole Anderson, and it didn't work. One, because Ole Anderson is a miserable old prick. And two because it was just too much for him to book both Georgia and Crockett at the same time. So he gave up on booking Crockett and just went back to Georgia. Um, And then they put together a booking committee um, that was headed by Dory Funk Jr. Uh, Gary Hart was on the committee, and I can't remember who else, but they've got a lot of pretty solid wrestling minds in the company at this point. Sure. Um committee put this show together but crockett is bringing in dusty Rhodes as both talent and booker um dusty came up with the name and the concept but he didn't book this show he books the next couple there's a lot of good and bad about dusty Rhodes booking he creates unbelievably memorable storylines it's basically a never-ending fountain of ideas he also pisses off literally everyone in the entire world at some point or another so that's you know that's just what you got to deal with with him (laughs) The biggest story in the wrestling world is that Vince McMahon has withdrawn from the NWA and is going national. I think he formally withdrew at the NWA meeting in September 83, which also would have been when they voted to put the belt back on Flair. So that is like one single meeting you could write a book about. I wonder if Vince was part of the vote. Before he, he, I think he may have given notice right at the beginning, or maybe he stuck around to get the skinny on what they were doing. Yeah, like wouldn't that have been the real Vince move? Yeah. Is to wait until the very end yeah. and it's after like, all right, yeah, after you've heard what they're planning to do, then you get up and you're like, well, got an announcement to make, boys. Hey Vince, this, uh, you haven't told us which talent you're giving us for the big show. Well, <laughs> funny you should mention that. This may have also been when Jim Ross overheard the other promoters plotting to murder Vince. Yeah. Um, JR is in the bathroom taking a shit, and he <laughs> overhears. I can't remember who, but some of the some of these grizzled old guys talking about, like, can we hire a hitman to kill Vince? Here's the deal, this is guys. A fucked up world, guys. Wrestling in this day was not dissimilar from the mafia. Like, oh. it, it was basically the exact same shit. Stan Munchnik was the Don. And everybody else, you did not leave the family. Because you knew the secrets of the family. You couldn't just go and do your own shit. Much less do your own shit in an attempt to beat out the family that you were already a part of. That was the most unreal sacrilege imaginable. No one had stepped out like this in the 70 fucking year long run of the NWA. And what he tries to do right after this is even worse because he tries to sign Harley Race to steal the NWA champion and sabotage Starcade. Like Vince McMahon has never said, as far as I'm aware, much about leaving the NWA. I'm sure they just 
he allowed to leave the stuffy old men because he had bigger, grander ideas. But it does feel like it's more than just him trying to collect some talent and more than just him trying to beat competition. That shit feels spiteful. <laughs> there, it's always felt like there's something very Freudian about like Vince's relationship with his dad and him trying to destroy all these old time wrestling promoters who reminded him of his dad and who his dad revered and respected. Yeah. It has to be said that if Vince McMahon senior could come back from the grave, literally the first thing he would do was punch his son in the fucking face for leaving the NWA, (laughs) much less all the rest of it. So Vince meets up with Harley race for a drink in Kansas city offers him a lot of money to, you know, bring the belt to the WWF and presumably put over either Backlund or more likely Hulk Hogan because Hogan's coming in. Harley considers Vince's offer. As Harley tells it, he, like, gets up, like, goes into the bathroom with Vince. Like, they stand in front of the mirror. Harley's like, you see that? Points to his reflection. He's like... I got to get up in the morning tomorrow and look at myself in the mirror. And I can't do that if I, you know, walk out on the NWA right now. There's also a rumor that a scuffle (laughs) happened at some point that night. Yeah. Because Vince McMahon is crazy enough that he would try it with Harley goddamn race. Allegedly, Vince tried to shoot Harley and (laughs) Harley took care of business. Now, here's the funny thing. If Flair had been the champion and he was the one meeting with Vince... (laughs) Flair's going to WWF. Oh, I thought you meant Vince could have taken him. Well, yeah, he could have taken Flair. That, that's not the point, but like, I think that that conversation may have gone differently. Yeah. But Harley's not the guy who's going to betray the whole concept yeah. of the NWA. No, I mean, he, yeah, he, it's complicated for him because he has stakes in both Kansas City and St. Louis. And it's a legacy thing. Like, Harley's coming to the end of his run... He doesn't have anything to gain for just by getting a quick fix payment. He's worried about how people are going to look at him when he's done. He did, of course, eventually go to New York and you know, got treated like shit. Yeah. I mean, of course, he had to have known he was going to be, too. Like, he had his chance, and he's like, well, he's going to bury me now. Yeah. In storyline, Harley put a $25,000 bounty on Flair so that someone would take him out and... Harley wouldn't have to defend the title against him. Bob Orton and Dick Slater claim the bounty when they hit Flair with a spike pile driver on the concrete floor. Jesus. Uh, Flair was out for about a month. He returns in epic fashion, like swinging a baseball bat like a wild man and chasing Orton and Slater out of the arena and then just cuts this insane promo, challenging Harley to defend the title against him at Starcade. And then Harley does literally everything in his power to try to duck this match and not make it happen. Yeah. So with that, we're set for one of the biggest matches ever in wrestling to this point on Thanksgiving night in Greensboro, North Carolina. I, God, I miss wrestling on Thanksgiving. I feel like I text you every Thanksgiving. Wouldn't it be awesome if there was a wrestling show tonight? You do. And I completely understand it. Like, Hell, it's a logcast tradition to do two episodes a week of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving should equal wrestling. It's yeah. a time where everyone's gathered together, everyone's watching TV. 
literally the only thing they air is the Charlie Brown Christmas special and football. Yeah, There's and nothing like, else on. After watching the Lions and the Cowboys game, I'm usually not up for another NFL game that night. I've usually had my fix. And, like, I understand if they want people to be able to go home and be with their families. Like, like that's a very noble thing. But since when does WWE give a fucking shit about that? You can also just tape something. Literally the only reason that wrestling doesn't happen on Thanksgiving now is because Vince McMahon has been writing the script for wrestling for 40 years, and he personally yeah. likes to be home on Thanksgiving. <laughs> Thanksgiving is just Vince's favorite holiday, and he never wanted to work on Thanksgiving, except when he was trying to put Crockett out of business, and they did Survivor Series. But especially since they've brought Starcade back, if Starcade is just going to be a taped house show, why not air it on Thanksgiving night? Makes total sense. And I'm very salty that stuff. I'm, I'm sure Triple H is going to make Starcade great again. Like, that's going to happen, right? I mean, I know that your hopes are up high, and I hope very much that that is the case. Um, Everything else we've wanted has come back. Yeah. Halloween Havoc, Bunkhouse matches. I don't know that all of those things have been all that great, per se. War <laughs> but they are back. Yeah. Like, we literally began this podcast lamenting that all these great WCW concepts had gone away, and now they've all come back between, w, between NXT and AEW. Guys, we manifested this somehow. Yeah. We've joked before about Triple H listening to this podcast, but even if he doesn't, he telepathically caught what we were putting down. So... um the damper was it was bad weather um, in the south on this Thanksgiving. It was a big ice storm. So the closed circuit business wasn't as big as they were hoping, but they still sold 30,000 closed circuit tickets, which is not bad at all. I don't know how much these tickets cost, but they clearly grossed hundreds of thousands of dollars from that. Yeah, that's a crazy amount of money, honestly. <laughs> yeah, for territory wrestling at this point. I mean, the gate is massive, too. We'll get to that in a second. Um, yeah. So to get into the show, Thanksgiving night, 1983, uh, Thursday, November 24th, with the Greensboro Coliseum in Greensboro, North Carolina. Show is sold out with 15,477 in attendance, paying about $500,000. That's an average ticket price of about $30, the equivalent of $78 today. That is a healthy ticket price for 1983. Sweet Jesus, yeah. Which didn't turn anybody away, because people were fucking hot to be here. Yeah. Like, this isn't just a big crowd or an excited crowd. This is a white-hot crowd for what are mostly kind of weird matches. Yeah. Um, it's about, um, yeah, like I said, 30,000 closed-circuit tickets. On commentary, the reliable team of Gordon Soley and Bob Cottle. Who are really just like two old, old, old ass men who can't be shaken or surprised by anything. <laughs> there is just something to the laid backness of their commentary that like nothing really fires them up. Occasionally, occasionally they'll get upset when the heels cheat, but that's about it. My favorite part of this show was at one point, uh, Gordon was like, well, I, I hate to be, you know, biased or anything, but 
one of these wrestlers saved me when I was being attacked by some vicious, horrible heels. And, uh, well, I think I'd like to see him win. Really? That's all you can muster for that? Yeah. As long as Gordon had enough gin and tonics, he was fine. He was just very smooth. Also, for some reason, because Bob Cottle's holding the microphone and there's only one microphone. Why can't they get them both microphones? Can they I don't know. Two microphones? Bob Cottle is standing literally sideways pointed at Gordon Soley, who was staring directly at us on camera. And they're one inch away from each other so they can both be heard on the microphone. And it's just a very <laughs> odd setup. Um, there is no intro here. We cut nope. straight into the arena and we've got the assassins and Bugsy McGraw and Rufus R. Jones in the ring. What a matchup to open the show. I rewound this like three times thinking I'd missed something. Nope. The, nothing was missed. They say, they literally save the national anthem or whatever for like yeah. literally right before the main event. So there's nothing to begin this show. It just starts. There's no entrances. There's no music. It just happens. Solely mentions that McGraw has a college degree and was a good football player. In case you're wondering where Jim Ross got that from. Oh, yeah. Um, this <laughs> match actually is a good example, though, of what this show represents. We know that, like, Super Clash and WrestleMania were, like, big super shows where they pulled, like, the best from all the different territories. But that's what this is, too. Yeah. Like, Bugsy McGraw is a huge draw from, like, Florida and Texas. Yeah. Her- Hercules has been drawn in St. Louis. He's one of the assassins, Hercules Hernandez from WWE. Uh, Rufus R. Jones is a guy. Yeah, <laughs> but Rufus Jody, exists. Yeah, Jody Hamilton's a big-time star from Georgia. Like, yeah, everybody on the show is a big star somewhere. Yeah, I mean, that's part of, in this era, if you're going to bill it as, you know, the biggest show ever, you got to get guys from outside your territory to make it special. Yeah, and that's why, even if you're from Georgia and you're like, well, I don't know who the fuck Greg Valentine is, but, oh, shit, they got Bugsy? Yeah. Like, you can appeal to everyone. So, yeah, the assassins here are Jody Hamilton and Ray Fernandez, who will later play Hercules in the WWF. Um, Soli somehow gets back on McGraw, having a degree in business administration from the University of Indiana. That is the biggest burial of that character that you could possibly say. Like, this is obviously a wild man, unpredictable, what's he going to do kind of guy. He's literally basically George the Animal Steel. And then they imagine if you were watching a George Animal Steel match and then they were like, well, George Animal Steel got a degree in architecture from the universe or just saying his real life thing like, oh, George Animal Steel, noted history substitute teacher teacher from East Lansing, Michigan. (laughs) He loves to teach math in East Lansing, Michigan elementary schools. George Animal Steel eating the turnbuckle pad. Was the best one we did what we did one of these a little while back where it was like The Undertaker as Mark Calloway and JR mentioned him having a degree in like sports management or something yes. like that. Yes. And like a three point three GPA or something like that. The dead man Undertaker <laughs> with his degree in sports management. From the University of Texas, University of Texas El Paso, or yeah, like something from like a that. shitty university, like just lie. <laughs> yeah. Um, Mr. McGraw has a degree in witchcraft from Salem University. Come on, man. 
I love watching Rufus R. Jones because you see where Dusty got all his shit from. Yeah, Dusty stole all of his shit from Rufus yeah. R. Jones. Uh, Rufus R. Jones wrestles the way every black baby face does in this era. Lots of shuffling, lots of jabs, lots of, you know, knee shaking. Dusty Rhodes, the Elvis Presley of professional wrestling, stole all the black guy stuff and repackaged it as coming from a white man. Yep. That is what delighted many millions all over the world is seeing a fat white man doing all the things a black man would do. Uh, the assassins get heat on Jones after they rake his eyes. That only lasts about 30 seconds. Rufus makes the hot tag to McGraw after a headbutt. McGraw hits a atomic drop and a backdrop. McGraw then gets rolled up by one of the assassins and pinned a pretty weak finish to a pretty bad match. Now, let me give some credit to the costume designers here, which I'm sure were the guys themselves. But the assassins are a kind of short, super fat guy and a tall, incredibly muscular guy. And so in order to make the short, fat guy not look bad, <laughs> their uh, costumes are literally just black spandex from head to toe. Yes. And a gold mask. So they it hides all of their body details completely. That's some smart costuming. <laughs> But you really can't do the switcheroo with these guys because they're so radically different in size. Oh, God, yeah. And their their wrestling styles are totally different, too. Like, Hercules is, like, picking people up and stuff. That is not what Jody Hamilton is doing. No. Uh, we then go backstage to a very young Tony Schiavone, who is, like, brand new to Jim Crockett Promotions. This is one of his very first shows with the company. Um he just kind of, you know, introduces us to the show, says he's going to be backstage getting interviews with some of the wrestlers. And we see Ric Flair, Roddy Piper, and Ricky Steamboat just kind of hanging out in the background. Throughout the course of the show, this is my favorite thing about it, is A, Tony does a great job of sort of like managing the chaos here. Because he's literally just interviewing people as they walk by, and it's literally the actual locker room. But also, like, I love the idea of just like, well, it's a big night, so we're back in the locker room. We're going to interview people as they get ready. And you just see people, in, they interview Flair like four times. And the first time, he's like still in his suit. And the second time, he's like getting a drink and getting ready. And the third time, he's like working out, getting ready. And the fourth time, he's with uh, his trainers, and they're talking about what he went through to get ready for the match. I just love that idea that you're with them all the way through that process. It's very cool. Next up, we've got Johnny Weaver and Scott McGee against Kevin Sullivan and Mark Lewin. Now, let's be clear about this. Johnny Weaver is the man who invented the sleeper hold. Wow. That's how old that motherfucker is. Yeah. Weaver and McGee are the faces. Sullivan and Lewin are heels managed by Gary Hart. I Sullivan, I identify with the Florida Territory, but I think he's coming to Crockett with Dusty. Yeah, they've just uh, launched his sort of, like, Army of Darkness, like, voodoo thing. So, like, and Mark Lewin was his longtime, like, sidekick. So, like, they've just brought that whole thing to Crockett. So he's not fully in, enveloped in all of that yet, as you can tell by him just wearing, like, some purple tights and being a normal dude here. Like, a couple years from now, he's going to be way deeper into it. Uh, McGee gets worked over for the first couple minutes until he can make the tag to Weaver. Weaver hits an Oklahoma stampede, then he goes for a bulldog, but Sullivan counters and runs him into the corner. Weaver now takes the heat. 
Lewin hits a knee drop on Weaver's arm, and that is enough for the pin, although Sully solely initially calls it a two count. Yep. It's, yeah. Not, it's not, not great. No. This is one of Weaver's last matches. He's literally, like, just doing his, like, put everybody over on my way into retirement thing. Like, he, literally. He started wrestling in, like, 1961. Like, th- this dude is old as shit. Then they do an insane post-match angle where the heels jump the faces. Gary Hart literally pulls, like, a knife out of yep. his boot. And the heels use it to carve the faces up. Like, just fucking cut their foreheads with the knife. Yeah, that's not not the subtlety of a blade job. An actual fucking knife. Yeah. I... This is the second match on the card, and we've got a knife. And the next match is what the next match is. (laughs) Angelo Mosca shows up to try to make the save, and... He gets his arm cut with the knife, which is somehow more gruesome than the forehead. When we see him later, and it's like, there's literally blood everywhere. Like, they, like, nicked an artery doing this. Yeah, this is just a stunning level of violence for an undercard match. It's so dangerous. Why would you do this? Yeah. (laughs) I was listening to a clip. It was a like Jim Cornette clip where listeners were asking him questions and somebody had questions about this show. And one of them was, was anyone concerned about bloodborne illnesses? And it's like, no, obviously they fucking weren't. And the stunning thing about it to me, I think somebody blades in like almost every single match on this show, but how are you going to pull out a knife? Okay. So the next match is Abdullah, the butcher versus Carlos. (laughs) Yeah. Which, notorious, as literally they're promoting it as it having been banned from Puerto Rico and the Caribbean islands because it's so violent that they won't do it. So Too how are you violent gonna, for Puerto Rico is a scary thing. How the fuck are you going to do the knife angle right before the too violent for Puerto Rico match? Yeah. Before we get there, Barbara Cleary interviews a family that drove from South Carolina for the show tonight. They all think Ric Flair is going to win the main event. I did like these little segments. These, I think, added to the feeling that it was a big show. When they try to do this on shows where the fans aren't really interested, all it does is make the show look so much worse by comparison. Like when Sean Mooney would go into the crowd in 1993 <laughs> WWE shows and be like, like where do you drive from three blocks away and my tickets were paid for? Yeah, who do you think's going to win? I don't know who's okay. in the match. <laughs> Uh, but when you do it on a show like this for the fans literally drove 200 miles and the kids are literally bubbling over with their desire for Ric Flair to win, it makes the show look awesome. Um, then we go backstage where Tony interviews world champion Harley, Harley Race, U.S. champion Greg Valentine and tag champions Jack and Jerry Briscoe. Quite the little stable we've got here. It's a stable of people who talk like this, and you can barely hear what they're saying. (laughs) Uh, Ray says he's getting insight from his friends who know Flair well, and he'll be using that knowledge tonight to destroy Flair. Harley Race is Satan, right? Uh, Harley Race is possessed by the devil. There's something about the look in his eyes when he looks... Nobody else looks directly into the camera. He looks directly in, and he's just like... 
I'm going to tear Ric Flair apart. He has no idea what he's in for. These men have been giving me secrets about him, and I'm going to kill him tonight. It's like, oh, shit. Yeah. Like, he had you- a fantastic promo on the way in here when he announced the bounty, where he was just like, who's going to, who's mad enough to claim it? Take the money. And Harley Race. It's a shame that the majority of his career came before things were televised, so most oh, people right. haven't seen it. But there's a reason he's revered. Stuff. Absolutely. Just this rare combination of, like, the old-school grit and legitimate toughness, but, like, modern promos. You can tell everything you need to know about Harley Race's promos because everyone copied them after that. <laughs> Like all of everybody who praises any like Arn Anderson promos and stuff like that, that's just Harley. They're just aping Harley. Uh, next up, we've got Carlos Colon against Abdullah the Butcher. Um, this is so they can get the show on in closed circuit down in Puerto Rico. Uh, Soli says the match is banned from Puerto Rico and shouts out our fans in San Juan and the rest of the Inter Caribbean Basin. Do you think – how much do you think they were concerned about putting this match on? Like, for real. <laughs> they should be very concerned. But if I mean, you, they, just, they just did somebody get stabbed in the previous match. Yeah, but if you've never seen one of these Abdullah versus Carlos matches, the, the crux of them is basically, hey, you just lay there. I'm just going to stab you in the fucking the face fork? for 20 straight minutes. Yeah. Abby almost immediately gets the fork out. Yeah. Cologne gets it away. They both stab each other. Abdullah blades. Uh, Cologne hits him with a knee drop. The ref gets bumped. Cologne locks on the figure four. Someone comes in and hits Cologne with something. This is not very well shot, produced, or announced. This is Hugo Sagnavinovich. <laughs> yes. They nope. eventually solely does not know who he is. Nope. <laughs> Gordon's like, oh, there's a young gentleman. <laughs> and Pop, Pop Call us to be like, that's Hugo Savinovich. Who you may better know as diving out yes. of the way of people on Spanish commentary for WWE for two decades. I gotta be honest, I didn't even know he was a wrestler. He wasn't. He was a manager. He he uh, managed in okay. Puerto Rico. I mean, Puerto Rican wrestling history is not something that's well-known, necessarily. Abdullah gets the pin. That's it. That's the tweet. Yep. It, this match literally lasts four and a half minutes. Like, there is no time wasted here. Let's just get it done and go back to Puerto Rico and carve our faces up some more. Yeah, didn't need to last any longer than this. Uh, we go backstage where Tony interviews Angelo Mosca with his bleeding arm. Jesus Christ. He needs to go to the hospital. This is not a joke. <laughs> He's got his entire arm wrapped up and you can see the blood leaking through. Literally, the bandage gets bloodier as he's cutting the promo. <laughs> this is horrific. And he's... Like, it's not an amazing promo, but it's pretty fucking good for bleeding to death during... Yeah, he's somehow still going to referee the tag title match after he got stabbed. You can't find anybody else to do that shit? (sighs) 
And then Barbara interviews two women who drove from Raleigh for the show. They both think Flair is going to win, and they are hoping they get to take a ride on Space Mountain after the show. Yeah, that's real clear, isn't it? (laughs) It's a different world where you actually had women show up to wrestling shows. That was Southern Wrestling had so many more women interested in it. Like, Northern Wrestling was all just dudes. It always was. Really be interesting. Some, like, statistical analysis and thought given to, like, how they drove away all the female fans is an interesting question. I mean, partially, I'm not sure that Vince McMahon saw any value in them. Like, unfortunately, like, if you ask Jim Cornette, it's because, like, the wrestlers stopped fucking all the female fans. (laughs) I mean, you've heard Lance Storm say that. Him and Jericho got heat with Cornette because they wouldn't hook up with the female fans. You're going to kill the business, kid. You got to service the fans. God. I mean, maybe, but probably not. I I find that dubious. But like anecdotally, every time a wrestler talks about like going to the shows as a kid, like 100% of the time, it's like, yeah, my grandma would take me because she loved chanting about how much she wanted Ric Flair to die. <laughs> There's yeah. something there. Just... Heard some, I've also heard some of the old timers be like, we judged like how hot the business was by how many women were there. That like we could tell it was cooling off when there weren't women in the crowd. That's probably a very good point, honestly. And like WWE today could probably take that. Like it's a predominantly male thing that isn't overly welcoming to women. So if there are a lot of women, you must be putting on a product that people genuinely want to see. Cause there's always going to be weird fucking dudes at wrestling shows. No shortage of those. Yeah. Uh, next up, we've got Wahoo McDaniel and Mark Youngblood against Bob Orton and Dick Slater. So we've got rednecks against Indians. Yay. Do you want to guess? This is a nice piece of trivia. Who was originally um, advertised as Wahoo's partner here? You mean Mark Youngblood wasn't the big draw that they were waiting for? No, they had something else in mind. They had Hulk Hogan in mind. Hulk fucking Hogan. He's on one of the old posters. Um, He was never actually going to be here because he's in Japan on a tour at this point. There's... Um, what was the big tag tournament they would do? Oh, uh, that was back before. It wasn't like an official thing, but yeah. Okay. But yeah, he's on a new Japan tour at this point. So presumably somebody like Crockett probably called Vern and was like, hey, can I have Hogan for our Thanksgiving show? And Vern was like, yeah, sure. I don't give a shit. And like they put him on the poster probably without actually checking that he could be there. But yeah. Meanwhile, Hulk already knows he's not coming back. He's doing his farewell tour of New Japan, and he's he's, already told people in the office. And he's making like $10,000 a week in Japan, so no, he's not going to do the Thanksgiving show to be fifth from the top. This is also the tour where he tells Inoki, and Inoki stooges him off to Vern, so when he comes back to Minnesota, Vern's like, welcome back, motherfucker. Yeah, Vern's waiting for him with his blade. (laughs) Um... Yeah, so, of course, Hogan is lighting the world on fire in the AWA, but he is on his way to New York, and he's going to get the keys to the kingdom there. But, I mean, at this point, he's just 
another big territorial star and they were trying to get all the big territory stars they could for this show. Understandable. Uh, the ring announcer tries to make a special announcement, but his microphone goes out. It comes back on and he's announcing that Dusty Rhodes is in attendance tonight, but the camera can't find him. Yeah. Production mostly good on this show, but there's a few snafus, all of which seem to involve Dusty. I, I would love to think, I don't know who would have sabotaged him, so I can't even come up with a clever person who I think could have done it, but that would be funny as shit, especially considering he booked the damn show. Uh, Gordon says that Slater is so tough, he would fight a buzzsaw and give it the first two rounds. I love that line. That's one of the greatest lines I've ever heard spoken about anyone. There's a reason why Gordon Soley's the best. One of the best Gordonisms, uh, the uh, the Crimson Mask. I love the what five letters, two words. I quit. Yep. Um, not much of interest happens here. Um, Youngblood's in control for a while until Slater catches him with a Russian leg sweep. Orton goes for a pile driver. Youngblood manages to backdrop out of it, and he tags in Wahoo. Youngblood tags back in. He hits drop kicks on both his opponents. The heels then cut him off. Orton hits a superplex and pins him. The faces are really getting their asses kicked on this show. They're getting beat. They're getting cut up with blades. Like This is a very different booking philosophy from what we'd see in the WWF. It kind of makes sense, though, because the heels win the first four matches and the babyfaces win all four of the next four matches. Yeah, they, win the, they win the ones that matter. But, I mean, I guess the other logic is you got to go on the road after this. And when the babyfaces win, there's not really any heat there. Like, yeah. The idea is the babyfaces get beat up on TV so you can go on the road and they can get their revenge in the arena shows. Yeah. So it's smart to do this because basically what you're doing is creating a situation where the first four matches are to build up heat on guys that you want yeah. to put over, have the faces face later on. And then the top four matches just blow off storylines. It, it's a good structure because you're building heat, building heat, building heat until the fans are like pissed. And then you give them nothing but what they want from then on. Yeah. Um, Shivani interviews Flair backstage. Flair says he trained harder than he ever has for this match tonight. He says uh, Jay Youngblood and Ricky Steamboat helped him, and he wishes them good luck in their match. Then Youngblood and Steamboat come in. They both proceed to cut, like, terrible mumbly promos. Oh, my God, it's terrible. This is a weird version of Ric Flair, too, because he's just so, like, quiet and soft-spoken here. He's trying to figure out how to be a babyface. Yeah. Now, arguably, once Ric Flair becomes Ric Flair, he never tries to be a babyface again. He is a he is a babyface at various points because the fans love him so much, but he's just being heel Ric Flair as a babyface. Like, that character is still the same heel dickhead Ric Flair. Here, he's trying to be a white meat babyface, and it's weird as shit. Like, he's, like, intentionally trying to have no charisma. Yeah. 
Um, we then go to an interview with Dusty Rhodes, but the mic doesn't work. And unfortunately, the people who are actually filming it, it's not like everybody's got walkie-talkies or headsets at this point. So, like, they don't cut away from it because they don't know that the audio is not working. So all we hear is Gordon Soley trying to lip-read Dusty Rhodes and be like, (laughs) well, it seems like he's talking about how much he wants to face the winner of the title match. Um, Next up, we've got a TV title match as the great Kabuki defends against Charlie Brown. There's a backstory here. Oh, yeah. It's one of my favorite dumb wrestling storylines. Um Kabuki and Jimmy Valiant had a Loser Leaves Town match back in August, and Kabuki won. Uh, Shortly thereafter, a guy who looked just like Jimmy Valiant under a mask debuted as Charlie Brown from Out of Town. Charlie Brown from Out of Town. I love this. Why don't we know who he is? Oh, he's from Out of Town. I enjoy every time that every time this has been done, I've popped for it. Hulk Hogan is Mr. America. The Miz as the Calgary kid. Uh, John Cena as Juan Cena. Hell yeah. Edge and Christian as the conquistadors. Like it's always fun. Always. I always enjoy this. And the more obvious it is that it is the guy, the better. And this is just Jimmy (laughs) fucking Valiant with With like giant beard. Literally, all he does is he has half a mask on. (laughs) Literally. It's like he's turned a hat inside out and he's wearing it over his eyes. Um, The stipulation here is that if if Charlie Brown loses, he has to unmask. And if he's revealed to be Jimmy Valiant, he'll be suspended from the NWA for a year. Is that what winds up happening eventually? How does this blow off? I would assume it eventually does. I yeah, don't don't remember what actually happens with the TV title after this. Got it. Uh, Kabuki is managed by Gary Hart. Uh, Brown starts off with a couple backdrops, but he gets caught with a kick to the gut. Kabuki goes to the top rope and jumps off to apply a claw. Yes. Question mark. That is what he would do. It was to get like extra oomph on the claw. I would love to hear Jim Ross go to town on that. Her leaving his feet unnecessarily, I would say. Yes. Um, Kabuki holds the claw for several minutes until Brown fires up and fights out. Kabuki misses a kick. Brown hits an elbow drop and gets the pin. A new champion and a pretty good match, you know, for the 80s. It's pretty good. Good. Kabuki wasn't that great. Um, You're stealing money, Kabuki. Yep. Charlie Brown. Uh, Jimmy Valiant's got like. I actually like him more as Charlie Brown than I like him as Jimmy Valiant because like he has like unleashed charisma here. Like he is yeah. losing his shit, and it's just uh, really fun. Jimmy Hart throws a hilarious fit after the match. Yes, he does. Just a meltdown. Love Jimmy Hart or. Gary Hart. Gary Hart, yeah. Gary Hart, one of the best managers of all time. Again, most of his best work, not on camera, so a lot of people don't know. Um, Soli and Caudle then preview the Piper versus Valentine match, which is uh, going to be a dog collar match. Um, this is where Soli you know, talks about his history with Roddy Piper, that Piper... Um, stepped up and saved him when he was being threatened by, I can't remember who it was. 
I don't even know that he said. Yeah, but not not that important a part of the story. But that was Piper's face turn after he'd been a heel commentator in Georgia. So if you're wondering just how long they've been doing the babyface announcer gets beaten up by the dastardly heel thing, um, forever, literally forever. That was in like 1981. Except it's really sympathetic when it's Gordon Soley, because Gordon Soley looks like you could beat him up without actually meaning to. He's your grandpa. Ah. Uh, we go backstage again to Shivani with Harley and Orton and Slater hanging out on the couch. Um, Race warns Flair that he's coming for his neck tonight and he's going to finish the job. This promo is like the Legion of Doom meeting to plot Superman's yes. demise. Like, they're both like, the Harley's like, these two men know more about Ric Flair than anyone on Earth. What do you think I should do, boys? And they're like, go after his neck because we <laughs> broke it. <laughs> I guess you should target his broken neck, boss. Just like the most evil fucks imaginable just sitting on a couch. And they're just sitting on a couch. You never just see wrestlers just chilling on a couch in like full gear, sweaty from the match, just hanging out. Uh, we then get the interview with Dusty Rhodes. The mic works this time. He's two times former world heavyweight champion, and he issues a challenge to the winner of the main event. So we're already setting up Starcade 84 here. It's amazing that we don't get that match for another year after this, but I guess it's patience not that crazy. They had back then. But I mean, yeah, it's just, it's a different world. Like with the pacing of things there, it's not that hard to keep them apart for a year. Also, it takes you a lot longer to get around the word that like, Hey, this match is happening at this time. Yeah. The more time you take, the bigger draw you get. Next up, we've got our dog collar match. It's Greg Valentine against Roddy Piper. Um, Valentine is the U.S. champion, but that belt is not on the line here, which I feel like they didn't make clear until the very end of this match. They did not. Like, not until at the end where Piper's like, I'm coming for that belt. I was like, oh, you didn't have it already? Yeah, this will hilariously happen again with Piper when he beats Hollywood Hogan at Starcade 1996. Now, part of the reason for that is very specific, and that is Roddy Piper doesn't do jobs. No. Can't so, put belts on Piper. He, he, did, he did lose the belt to Valentine here. That is true. After that Valentine true. hit him in the head with the ring bell. Well, like, generally speaking, you don't put belts on Piper because you don't know if you're a, he's gonna just gonna leave and take the belt with him, or just say fuck it and drop it in a trash can somewhere. Or C, or B, uh, he's never gonna lose that title ever, forever. Yeah. Um. So the way this works is they're attached at the neck with a ten foot chain, and they both got spiked dog collars on. Um. I love a good dog collar match. I loved Cody versus Brody Lee in AEW. This one is incredibly brutal. Ironically, as much as I've said that the uh, the bull rope match is the worst gimmick match in all of wrestling, the dog collar match, which is not that different, is awesome. Almost every single time. There's just something more brutal about it. And this, the way this match starts is the best way this kind of match can start. They both just yeah. start like pulling on it with their necks. It's yes. like... Literally, they're like, I'm going to out-pull you with my goddamn throat. So manly. Yeah. It's just, and they just stand there doing it for like three minutes, but it's intense. 
Like yeah. they're like, I don't care. You're going down. Piper breaks out all the old tricks. He trips Valentine with the collar. He jerks his neck. He crotches him with it. Uh, Valentine targets Piper's ear, which he, you know, kayfabe injured in the attack. Piper lost, quote unquote, 75% of his hearing um, from the attack. That's a lot. It's a lot of hearing to lose. Um, Valentine keeps hitting the ear loads up his fist with the chain and Piper loads his fist with the chain. He punches Valentine, Valentine blades. Uh, They fight out on the floor. Valentine um, hits Piper in the ear again. And Piper is bleeding. Did this crazy motherfucker cut his ear? Yes. Oh my God. That's motherfucker did a blade job on his ear, inner ear, not outer ear, inner. It's so brutal. I love it. Like, I've never, and all the time I've been watching wrestling, seen someone work the ear before. And I don't know why, because it is strangely brutal to watch. I'm really squeamish about anything with ears. But also the idea that, like, he can't, he has no equilibrium. Like, literally, yeah. he, like, punctured his eardrum. He has no idea what's going on. And you know Roddy Piper can do a good, like, wildly swinging off balance. Yeah, this match kicks ass. Like, I've never seen a match like it. Just pure brutality as Valentine pounds on Piper. Then Piper fires up. He's a bloody mess. The crowd is going wild for his comeback. I'm going to say something controversial here. Oh, no. Roddy Piper probably could have been every bit the babyface that Hulk Hogan was. Like, in a different way, maybe. But this motherfucker has more fire than anyone I've ever seen as a baby face in these days. It's just intense. And the crowd loves him beyond anything I've ever seen during his comebacks. Uh, Valentine shuts down Piper's comeback, catches him in a sleeper. Piper starts to fade, but he fights out. Valentine goes to the top rope. Piper yanks him off. He hits a series of right hands, covers Valentine, and pins him. What a just old-school brawl this was. It was a delight. Like, when I turned on this show, this was the kind of match I was looking for, and I was very happy we got it. Yeah. Um, Valentine attacks Piper during the celebration, but Piper fights back and gets the better of him, and Valentine bails. Yep. And these guys will both be on WrestleMania 1 two years after this. That's pretty funny when you put it that way. Valentine, Piper, Steamboat, and Orton all wrestled at the first Starcade and the first WrestleMania. That's got to be pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, you see a couple things. One, that like Vince raids Crockett. And two, like Crockett has to rebuild after this. Like They've got a mix of... They get raided by Vince, and also a lot of their talent is old and just not. You know, you got your Wahoos and Harley Race and guys who are not going to be around a whole lot longer after this. I mean, it's not just that they get raided by Vince per se. Like, a lot of these guys aren't theirs. Like, a lot of these guys are just NWA guys, right? They're from various territories. Piper's still primarily from the Oregon Territory. He just is wrestling a lot in Charlotte right now. It's just, 
if they had ever consolidated, if they had realized what they were up against with Vince, yeah. and they could have signed these guys to like some actual contracts, it never would have happened. Self-interest is too much. There are points where they try, and every time like the promoters just end up trying to steal each other's talent. There like you they go. could they could never unite. Like the only way it could work was one of them survives, which is basically what ends up happening with Crockett. All the other territories die out, and it's just Crockett and Vince. And I, I don't know if it's really that Vince was such a super genius that he knew that they would do that, but that's what happens. One man with one vision will beat 40 guys yeah. with 40 visions every time. Um, Shivani interviews Flair again. It's a lot of interviews. Yeah. Flair puts over his babyface friends and says he's winning the belt tonight. Wahoo agrees that Flair is winning tonight. Then Barbara Cleary interviews Don Carnoodle, former tag champion. The man who helped inspire Starcade is not booked tonight. He says the tag title match will be a great match. He thinks Flair will win the main event. And I guess Sergeant Slaughter has gone to the WWF at this point. Yes, he has. Yeah. All right, next up we've got our world tag title match as the Briscoes defend against Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. Uh, the Briscoes turned heel by cheating Steamboat and Youngblood out of the tag belts. And Angelo Mosca, bloody arm and all, is the special referee for this match. This is irresponsible. He should not be out there. <laughs> should really be at the hospital getting stitched up. Jesus Christ. Uh, Steamboat hits a beautiful arm jag on Jack, Jack Briscoe. Uh, Steamboat and Youngblood work over Jerry's arm. Uh, Jerry gets Steamboat with a kick to the gut to counter a corner charge. The Briscoe then hits a big double underhook suplex. Steamboat gets worked over for the next couple minutes. Jerry gets frustrated with a slow count and shoves Mosca. So Mosca knocks him on his ass. Yeah. A lot of biased officiating tonight. Oh, a whole bunch. Like, I don't know why exactly... Mosca is the the special referee here. Just like I'm not really sure why Gene Kaniski is the special referee for the main event, but it's pretty funny. Uh, Steamboat fires up with a series of chops. Youngblood and Steamboat team up for a double chop. Steamboat then press slams Youngblood onto Briscoe for the pin. We got new champions. A pretty good tag match there. All you can really say about this is that the Briscoes are very good. Steamboat's amazing, and yeah. Jay Youngblood is also there. He's there. Sure is. Uh, the Briscoes beat up Mosk after the match. They put the figure four on Steamboat, and one of them is going to hit a splash off the top rope, which is an awesome combo move. It's amazing they didn't do that more, because it leaves them wide open for oh a splash. God, I love it. But Mosca cuts him off, and the faces clear the ring and celebrate. There's also something so charming about the fact that, like, all, all like, the splashes and crossbodies or stuff, they're so sloppy. They're, like, it, it almost looks yeah. like they're done by guys who have never done them before. It makes it look real, though. It makes it look more real. It makes it look like they're actually fighting and, like, you're trying to go up to the top rope because you want to hurt the guy more. Like, I like that. Um, okay, so we have a lot of time to kill here. Um, yeah. There's, like, an hour left in the show and just the main event to go um and they have to set up the cage which takes forever so first they run through the credits like 
Gordon literally reads off like uh, the show is directed by so and produced by and like sometimes we'll do a little comedy like oh very nice guy gotta say hello to his wife yeah like spend several minutes going through the credits I I honestly want to say that part of the reason is that since they had all of those uh, production snafus earlier on that they kind of ran out of their like bullshit stuff. Like they, they kind of ran out of extra topics to talk about. So they're like, um, let's read off them credits guys. What do we got? Anything? Shivani then does a series of interviews. He interviews Charlie Brown, he interviews Piper, interviews Youngblood and Steamboat. We go back to Bob and Gordon who recap the action from tonight, go over the winners of all the matches they try to throw to Barbara, but they don't have the shot yet, so they have to buy even more time. They once again shout out the fans in San Juan and the Caribbean Basin. He just starts talking and talking and talking. <laughs> and like right when it seems like he hits on something actually that's decent to talk about, he's like, oh, we got Barbara, and away they go. Yeah. He's just so clearly bullshitting that he can't wait to be gone. Barbara interviews Dusty again. Again. You can tell who's booking this shit. He's with three young girls who all predict that Flair will win the belt. Dusty reiterates he wants a shot at the winner of the main event. Yeah. And then Bob and Gordon stall some more. There's like... At least like 45 solid... minutes of the show where you're just staring at Bob Cottle and Gordon Sully. Solid, like, 15 minutes. I don't know. I mean, I – this is just, like – this is how the WWF would do it in the, this era, too, though, is they would always, like, have a long build-up to the main event. They would always kind of reset, go to the announce table, have them recap what's been going on, have them talk about the main event, do interviews, video package, like – I do kind of like this. This does add a lot, but this got a little excessive. I wish they would show us, and I, I guess I know why they don't or whatever, but like, I wish they would show us the construction of the cage. Yeah, I'd be interested that, to see that. That would seem cool as shit. Oh, like, put look the cage at, over and be like, it's 15 feet high, solid steel, chain link fence. It'll cut your flesh like a razor blade. There's 40 men down there putting this monstrosity together, and it only it's only designed to hurt the men inside. Yeah, there will be no escape from that cage once this match begins. We will have a winner tonight. Absolutely. Um, and then they perform the national anthem. In the dark. Like, we never... They say it's some country singer, but, like, they never turn the lights on. So even though the camera's on the guy, we never actually see his face. Whew. And it's finally main event time. It's the match the world has come to see um, for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship inside a steel cage. Harley Race defends against the nature boy, Ric Flair. Flair is out first. He gets an epic entrance. The lights go out. They play 2001 A Space Odyssey. They do a light show. They do pyro. And then when the lights come up, the crowd goes wild. And Flair is there in the most 
gorgeous sky blue robe ever constructed robe and it's like the perfect color that even in this poorly lit place like it gathers all the light in the whole building he looks amazing he does a little hot it's like he's got wings it's like he does a little twirl and he comes down to the ring it's weird because they play all of his entrance music before he comes out and he comes out to silence like everyone else like i would say that up until gosh the 90s this was probably the greatest entrance in the history of professional wrestling that's the thing is you didn't see this kind of production value in the wwf for entrances at this time like oh hogan didn't hogan didn't have pyro hogan didn't have a light show yeah nwa you think about it as being low production values but they were like the first ones to use the music or they weren't the first ones to use the music but like they used it before wwf did and they had better entrances than WWF did. They just didn't go as far in the 90s when WWF took off with that. That's the crazy thing is it feels like the production value actually regressed. Yeah. If you go watch like a Bill Watts era show, the lighting is worse. There's fewer frills to the entrance. It feels like fewer cameras. Because with Watts, they were intentionally trying to make it look bad. Here, they're trying to make it look as good as they can. It's just... They're limited by the technology of the era. For this 30-second period of time, this show looks better than any WrestleMania did until I don't even know when. Maybe double digits? Like, this is the best produced a segment of wrestling is on a big show for at least a decade. Race doesn't really get an entrance. He just kind of appears. But that kind of also makes juxtaposes like the old school versus the new school thing. Uh, we've got former NWA champion Gene Kaniski as our special guest referee here. Uh, the rules are you win by pinfall or submission, one fall to a finish, no disqualifications, no count outs, and you cannot win by escaping the cage. Yep. Have we talked about what's your preference for cage match rules? How do you think you should win a cage match? I don't like escaping the cage because it always winds up being like a super kind of anticlimactic finish. It seems like it should be good, but like, and there's a couple of them that have been fine, but I like it to be pinfall or submission in the cage because that just gets across right from the start that this is going to stay in here and be a bloody battle. It does just feel like it buries the cage that they get out of it, people yeah. escaping from it because it's supposed to the it's supposed to keep everybody out and like in the south it really did keep the mark fans out because they'd have to scale the cage and the wrestlers would have time to fight them off i would love the escape the cage idea if the idea was that neither one wanted to that they just wanted to keep beating on each other forever until one of them finally their spirit broke and they decided they had to get out but more often than not, you only get like – like if it was like a 75-minute cage match and then finally somebody's spirit broke and they tried to escape, okay. Yeah. But that's not The way they is. would do – the way Bruno's cage matches would always work was he would just like pummel the guy into submission and then just walk out the door. Yeah, which is – I mean I don't know that there's a better way to bury your opponent than to do a cage match like that. <laughs> I also, I hate the door. You should not be able to escape through the door. No, why the fuck is there even a door? You should have to climb into that shit. The only time I think the door worked was that one with um, Kurt Angle and uh, Ken Anderson and TNA. Yes, yes. and that was a different kind of door, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. That match kicked ass. Yeah, it did. <laughs> uh, this is a pretty good cage match. Yeah. Flair works a headlock for the first couple minutes. Race manages to turn the tide by attacking Flair's injured neck. Race hits the pile driver. Flair's able to kick out. Flair makes a comeback, but Race shuts it down by slamming Flair into the cage. Flair recovers to run Race into the cage. He hits a knee drop. Kaniski keeps on getting keeps like getting on Flair and Race about using the cage. But there's they're no in, disqualifications in a cage match, right? They're in a fucking cage. Yes, there's no disqualifications here. His role in this is just to be like, oh, you know, that's that's not how I would have done it in 1971. <laughs> that's mean. Stop it. Uh, Flair hits a back suplex and he locks on the figure four. Race manages to turn it over and slip out. He gets a headbutt and then goes up and hits the diving headbutt from the second rope. Seems like he'd have the pin, but he's not able to make the cover. Flair recovers. He hits a vertical suplex, tries an elbow drop, but misses. Flair then goes up to the top rope, comes off with a cross body. That's enough for the one, two, three. Don't let anybody ever tell you Ric Flair never hit a move from the top rope. He damn sure fucking did. And it's the most awkward and beautiful thing in the world. Kaniski's laying in the middle of the ring, so they just trip and fall over him (laughs) on the way to the ground. Flair has no idea where he's hitting this fucking thing. (laughs) Like, he's way too excited, so he jumps, like, almost over race. That's what made it so real, though, was it was not graceful. Yes. And, like, he hits him hard. Yeah. Because Flair's a heavyweight at this point. Like, he's not small anymore. No, it looked like it would actually knock the wind out of Harley and he'd be able to keep him down. There's a reason crossbodies used to be a finish. Yeah. Like, you jump off the top rope, you hit a guy full speed from the top rope on the way down, you smash him into the ground. That's a pin. I love a good crossbody. If it's from a big guy, or even if it's from a little guy who really, like, Brian Pillman's crossbody where it get, like, 10 feet in the air, like, I think that's a legit move. Yes. It's just a horizontal splash. I don't see why it wouldn't hurt. <laughs> uh, the only problem is, like so many other moves, Ricky Steamboat did that shit so gracefully that it stopped seeming like it could hurt. Like... Yeah. Uh, baby faces flood the ring to celebrate with Flair. Flair gets on the mic and thanks the fans. He says it's the best night of his life. I love a post-match promo in the ring. Oh, God, yeah. They lift this him up on their shoulders. mandatory for a title win. Absolutely. Look, you, know, you guys know that I always talk about New Japan, and I'm sorry to constantly bring up the same example, but the best way to end a show, without question is whoever wins the main event, heel or face, stands in the ring and cuts a promo to the crowd about whatever. It can be short. It can just be like, thanks, guys. I really appreciate your support. This is a big moment for me. And then just your sign-off catchphrase, then you go home. And then you do the press conference in the back. It gives you time to digest what happened in the main event. It gives you an ability to connect with the guy that you just paid to watch and gives him a chance to connect to you. It's a beautiful moment. Don't just go off the air. With him posing on the turnbuckle, that's nothing. Fuck. (laughs) All right, so the match is over. There's like 20 minutes left in this show. This is very oddly timed out. And, like, 
you mentioned before the show when we were talking about this, like boxing pay-per-views kind of work like this, where there's like a ton of analysis after the fact. But that's not really what we get. They go back to the locker room and we just watch like a 20 minute celebration with flair in every baby face, which I like because it's something different. You get some interesting little character moments from it, but it's very strange because we're so used to pay-per-views being timed so that like the main event ends and we're off the air two minutes later. Like here it's just sprawl. Oh yeah. Like that one point, uh, Dusty walks up to Flair and he's like, congratulations, but I'm next. And like, that was a cool moment. Yes. But yeah, like you said, there's very little actually here. Like there's, then we go back for more staring at Gordon Soley and Bob Cottle. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so there's a couple Flair interviews here in between, uh, Barbara interviews Harley, who just kind of whines. He says like, this whole thing was set up for Flair to win. They did it in Greensboro, which is his town. They had Kaniski, who was a biased referee. I like the heel work of just the excuse making here. Yep, absolutely. Like, at the same time, too, he's, like, putting over Flair. Yeah. Like, he's just like, Flair's a tough son of a bitch. Tonight he was the best of the best. But also, this is bullshit. I was cheated. This is wrong. I'm the best. I'll beat him next time. He hits all the notes. He puts over Flair literally and figuratively but also keeps it open for the next match. That's that's the job, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Um, little character. I love Flair is literally drinking a Budweiser. Yes. And he's like, I'm allowed to, Steamboat will let me have a beer now that I'm done training. I also loved uh, Steamboat comes into the frame and he shakes up a bottle of champagne and sprays it directly at oh. Shivani. <laughs> Soaking <laughs> him from to head company, to toe. Tony. Also, that shit burns when it gets in your eyes. Oh, yeah, it does. And then he hands it to Flair, and Flair chugs an entire bottle of champagne. Oh, man. I mean, I've heard Fl- the, the drinking of prowess of these people is ridiculous. I've heard Flair say they would drink like, they'd each drink like a 12-pack of Miller Lite, like in the car ride on the drive to the next town. Yeah, somebody would have a 12-pack ready for the champ, just like sitting in a cooler when he came back. He'd drink the whole 12-pack. Then they get in the car, he'd drink a 12-pack on the way back to the hotel. They'd drink at the hotel bar. Then they wake up and go to the gym, and they come back and drink with brunch. Like, it was... I don't the know how any of these of people calories survive. they're burning wrestling just to not get fat drinking that much. Well, that's why every retired wrestler would immediately be, like gain like 125 pounds. Yeah. Yeah, got to change those eating habits. Because it's all beer and buffet, man. Yeah. And yeah, we go back to Bob and Gordon one last time, and then they throw to a highlight package, and that is the end of the very first Starcade. I mean, look, if you judge this by modern standards, this does not live up to our modern expectations for a pay-per-view. But... If you try to watch this from the perspective of a fan in 1983, I don't think anybody who was there or who watched this on closed circuit was disappointed with this show. This was had to be the greatest wrestling show they'd ever seen to this point. Absolutely. There's a reason that this became the template for what happened after. There's a reason that Vince McMahon saw this and said, now that's a good fucking idea. Such a good one that like he staked his whole career on the idea that he could do it big- successful at it 
he took this idea. This was a Dusty Rhodes original. And like Dusty stole all of his ideas from black wrestlers, Vince stole all of his ideas from Dusty. <laughs> but this is amazing. I'm trying hard to think about how many WrestleManias you'd have to go through to get to one I liked as much as this show. Oh, I mean, I love WrestleMania 3. Three's hard to top as a show. As a whole show, though, I don't know. Three does drag a little bit. Say, I think, I don't know, man. I might like this more than, like, the first 12 WrestleManias. Oh, boy. That's a hot take. It's just a big show. It feels like a big show. All of, like the production issues and stuff—they're charming. Like they're—they're they're figuring it out. You feel like something big is happening and being built in this moment, and it's beautiful. I love it for that. Yeah. So that is a wrap on the very first Starcade. Really happy that we finally did this. It just feels feels like this podcast wouldn't be complete until we had done these Starcades because they're such a big part of wrestling history. I mean, it's also yeah. For a generation of wrestling fans in the South, this was wrestling. And it all changed when Starcade went up north in 1987, and it was never the same again. And I also imagine that there are a lot of people listening to this who definitely have never watched Starcade 1983. And it was a really good opportunity to like let them know, like, hey, this is still fun to watch. Like. Yeah. You can catch this on the WWE Network. It's every bit as good. It's a hell of a lot better than a lot of the WCW shows that we've covered yeah, from honestly, years later. I'd rather watch this than like 1990, 1991 WCW. Also, we have gotten through this entire podcast without referencing the fact that a flare for the gold is spelled wrong. And What is the deal with that? Why does flare have an E on the end? I don't know. It's spelled F-L-A-R-E, as in a road flare that you pop. Instead of maybe they wanted to make it seem like it, they weren't just naming the pay-per-view after Ric Flair, but that spelling of Flair is the phrase. Is the correct spelling for Flair used in that context. It can't possibly be that nobody, nobody in the 30 years, 40 years since has ever bothered to think, oh, hey, that's a typo. Motherfuckers, really? Maybe Harley was just like, I ain't going to wrestle for no show with his name in the tagline. And they're like, well, we could just do a typo, I guess. Could or how about a race for the gold? Yeah, I was going to say it could be a race for the gold. What the fuck? What about two posters, dueling lines, a flare for the gold, a race for the gold? Oh, my God. <sighs> I need a time travel machine. I'm going to make so much money. <sighs> oh, speaking of money, we'll be back um, next time for Starcade 84, the million dollar match. As Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes face off for the largest purse in pro wrestling history, $1 million. Smoking Joe Frazier is the special guest referee. Yes. And that won't be dropping on Friday as a normal Lawcast episode would. That'll be dropping on Thanksgiving. Um, so look for that in your podcast feed, 6 a.m. Thanksgiving. It's a Lawcast tradition, a doubleheader on the week of Thanksgiving. Hell yeah. No matter what, even if they don't do wrestling on Thanksgiving, motherfuckers, we do wrestling on Thanksgiving because we love you like that. Got to give you something to do, especially this year with uh, COVID, since you're not probably not going to a movie or going to the bar or other things you might do on Thanksgiving night. If you are commuting to your homes yeah. and other states or whatever, 
Please listen to our podcast. Have a great time. Please be safe out there. For God's sake, it's horrible. Yeah, let's not let this be anybody in your family's last Thanksgiving. Absolutely. So listen up to the Lawcast. We're going to take care of you. Sit in your home alone like the lonely bastard you are. Listen to the Lawcast this Thanksgiving. It's the public health approved way to spend your Thanksgiving is listening to the Lawcast alone. Goddamn right. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.